Hello, and welcome to episode 225 of the N-Focus podcast. I am your irregular host, Andrew Brown, and this week we are joined by our regular co-hosts, Silvio Wassenaar. Hello, hello. And Rosalie, the little record girl. Hello. So we got a fairly full episode this week, so let's jump in with our latest Nintendo news. So new this week is the Super Mario Brothers movie. It appears to already be on track to break the all-time box office record for an animated film. Good for them. I believe we've all seen it. I know Sylvie and I both have. Did you end up seeing it, Rosalie? Yeah, I saw it in cinema last night. Okay, good. So let's go ahead and let's talk about the Super Mario Brothers movie. Uh, First off... Uh, The entire movie has already been in trailers. If you've seen all the stuff they put out for it, congratulations. You have seen the entire movie except for the very last scene. Good for you. (laughs) Anybody annoyed by this? (laughs) Yeah, I did notice that. I kind of wish I didn't also watch additional clips because I was like, oh, no, I've seen this bit. Oh, no, I've seen this bit. (laughs) And I think the opening would have, I still laughed, but I think the opening would have been funnier had they not have shown it. Yeah. Um, the opening is the first trailer. That yeah. is the first three, four minutes of the movie. Then goes right into introducing Mario and Luigi, which is their commercial. That's the second bit yep. of the movie. Uh, it, seriously, the first ten minutes of this movie is already out there. Just a little disappointing. This this is more criticism mm-hmm. of how movies are marketed in general. This yeah. happens all the time. There are a lot of people who just flat out refuse to watch movie trailers, and I completely understand why. If you are kind of on the fence on this movie, you can watch the highlights of the movie on YouTube right now, mm-hmm. and you will get more or less the gist of the entire thing. What about you, Sylvie? How, how are you feeling about it? It's a Mario movie. I was expecting that mm-hmm. anyway. I wasn't expecting, like, theatrical masterpiece out of this. I was just expecting a fun animated <laughs> movie based on some video games. Yeah, they probably showed a bit much, but it's not like I'm like, oh, now I can't enjoy the movie. It's just more like, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indifference. I had fun. Like, yeah, eh, is kind of how I feel about it overall, too. Uh, the, the Illumination studio is pretty divisive. You know, DreamWorks has its fans. Then there's Pixar, who, despite a good decade now of not really having... Gr- a great track record is still pretty revered, and then there's Illumination, the the Minion Studio. <laughs> but I, I kind of like Illumination's movies. I like the yeah. Sing movies. You can crucify me now. I like the Sing movies. <laughs> I haven't uh, seen them. No, no, no. I liked Despicable Me. I like the first one. Sing movies are great. I watch animation YouTube sometimes, and they just they hate the Sing movies. <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway, let's talk about the individual characters, starting with Mario. Now, the big issue with Mario is the voice actor, and they seem to be almost hiding the voice uh, in the trailers. We didn't really get to hear much of it. I actually thought Chris Pratt did an okay job. Like, when I was listening to the movie, I pretty quickly forgot that I was listening to Chris Pratt, because he actually is doing a vocal performance here. It's not just his voice reading the lines. Uh, I thought he did okay. I I wasn't as disappointed with it as I kind of braced myself to be. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, like, not a Chris Pratt fan, but I forgot that he was voicing him after a while. 
Mm-hmm. He's kind of doing a voice somewhere between the original Brooklyn-based Mario from before when they found uh, Charles Martinet and, and Charles Martinet. He has his moments where he's kind of got that tough, like, not all the way tough, just like tough enough that you kind of get a read on it and just that also higher pitched Mario classic voice that we all know. Mm. It's in the middle, I reckon. I actually did like his voice because it sounded more like the Mario in the cartoon series, which was like my favorite mm. cartoon as a kid. But I, I was more always defensive because I, I hate Chris Pratt for his <laughs> uh, associations. But no, I did also forget it was him for a while. Some bits still were a bit iffy sounding to me. Uh, it was it wasn't the worst thing ever. So there's nothing too much to complain about in the actual performance side of it. They kind of hang a lampshade on it as well at the start of the movie where the ad that we yeah. saw, I think at the Super Bowl, they're doing the the voices, like uh-huh. they're playing it up mm-hmm. for the ad. Yeah, you got that Charles Martinet cameo going, it's not too much. Yeah, he was Jumpman, I like that. <laughs> yeah, he, he was just like Jumpman. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was playing an arcade cabinet called Jumpman. Yeah. Yeah. And also... Getting into a fight with uh, Foreman Spike from Wrecking Crew. <laughs> yeah, I like the sunglasses really modernized that um, <laughs> character. Like, it's the same trope. Modernized, but just sure. Like, well, I mean, like, those sunglasses, you see them on... Douchebags? <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to think of a nice way to say it, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Just... Uh, jerks uh, but then mario has a bit of an arc in this movie like at the start he's confronted by foreman spike he's not really taken seriously he's not respected uh he's just left the wrecking crew to start his own business and it's apparently not going well he's getting kind of mocked in the community and even his family doesn't really support him so that's mario's arc in the story is finding self-confidence D- did we feel that this was pulled off successfully i kind of felt like i understood that's what they were going for but really once he finishes the obstacle course he's he's done and he's good to go (laughs) yeah i didn't feel that mario's arc was that good but it was the one between him and luigi which i actually made me cry (laughs) there's a Uh there's a bit near the like ending it's not really a spoiler where like he puts his head on luigi's head (laughs) there's lots of emotional moments and i'm like i like that they went that route because there's a lot of things where like brothers or enemies or all this and it was just it made me really tear up because like i think the actual Mm -hmm. brothers-ness of it was done better than the the actual mario becoming strong or his arc or whatever i kind of wish they hammered more into the brothers-ness because that's what worked the one thing that I wanted to talk about is how old is Mario? I'm more confused now after the movie than before. His <laughs> yeah. bedroom is just like an NES and yeah, it, it looks like the bedroom of like a, a 30-year-old nerd. And I, I say that as one. Um, I've always envisioned him as being kind of middle-aged. Yeah. But, but that room was not a middle-aged. Apparently he's in his, in his early 20s. Mm, yeah. Okay, sure. <laughs> His age is incredibly vague. <laughs> that really is the central relationship of the movie is between Mario and Luigi. And Luigi is done by Charlie Day, who Yay. does just a great job as the character. 
except he's hardly in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, that's that's might be my main issue with it is Mario and Luigi. Their relationship is the linchpin of the movie. It's what the climax is based on. Like that's how they solve the problem is the strength of their relationship. Luigi gets separated from Mario like as soon as they find the portal beneath Brooklyn and they're separated for the entire film and they're not really reunited until the last five minutes. So we can really see the strength of their relationship at at the start there. But that moment at the end is leveraged entirely on that first 10 minute sequence and I, I do think it would have been a lot better if they had remained together mm-hmm. and maybe you know had some conflict to reinforce their bond versus just you know Luigi is basically basically has the princess peach role in this <laughs> he's the one who has to be rescued we'll, we'll get to peach in a minute I didn't mind that so much because it was felt more like in Super Mario Galaxy where you have to keep kind of rescuing mm. Luigi as a side quest kind of thing. And I I thought it was kind of funny mixing up the trope a little bit. Yeah, I do wish he was in it more, but I, I am biased because I, I love Charlie Day and I, I'm a big Sonny and Philly fan. So I was like, any more Charlie Day I can hear and watch the bear because it's a flashback when when you see them as babies and i was like oh my god i loved i loved that was was... fan servicey just because it was the baby mario and luigi designs but like it worked on me (laughs) it was incredibly disconcerting because it was faithfully remade Mario and Luigi baby versions with with the beady black eyes (laughs) and the giant oval heads. (laughs) They they did not match the rest of the movie. I was incredibly creeped out by that whole scene. (laughs) I think having Luigi kidnapped gives Mario a bit of a a greater motive or motivation in this movie because Princess Peach... If it were done the other way around where Princess Peach was kidnapped, he's never met Princess Peach. It would have just been yeah. it would have been a very weird call to adventure. Whereas with Luigi, he's like immediately on it. He doesn't have to be convinced. He's just immediately fighting for him. Well, they don't really comment on it, but Luigi ending up in that situation is basically all Mario's fault too. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that that's another thing they could have done, but exploring this relationship more is you know, dwelled a little more on how Mario probably feels responsible for Luigi being in this situation in the first place, but they, they just move on to the next set piece. <laughs> uh, moving on to the next set piece, we next meet Princess Peach, who is basically a perfect and flawless person who can do whatever she wants. And I enjoyed it, actually. I, I Probably just because of 30 years of Peach being next to useless unless she's the player character then she mm-hmm. can float but still has basically the same personality <laughs> i i liked seeing this take on peach but again i think they could have added some layers or done something a little more interesting with it but i'll take this over her mm. usual characterization mm-hmm. and anyone saying that this is wokeness gone mad uh princess peach has been a playable <laughs> character since super mario brothers 2 so yeah shut up (laughs) which if you didn't know was doki doki (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i really liked her portrayal in this they seem to be setting seeds like for doing more with her in a future Mm -hmm. movie yeah 
I, I liked that both Mario and Peach had a personality in this movie, as opposed to the games. Mm-hmm. They do not have a personality in the games beyond just like surface level stuff. Luigi has the most personality out of most of the main characters, the the heroes at least. And he didn't even get that until Luigi's Mansion. Yeah. But yeah, seeing Princess Peach in a, a more mentor role as well, not just mm-hmm. the love interest as well. It, I don't know. I didn't pick up on the love interest part that much. Like everyone implies it all the time, but I, I've yeah. never seen it personally. Mario even says, I'm just being nice. And like, that was how I read it too. It's like, yeah, he's just being nice. I don't know why you're acting like there's a <laughs> relationship developing here. Like, Mario's just being nice. <laughs> there is a scene where Donkey Kong makes fun of them for like him flirting, but I, 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 yeah, I, I, I and one. I do. And Mario says, "I'm just being nice." Yeah, there's like a running joke where Miyamoto actually ships them together, but the guy that directed Odyssey and the other Mario games doesn't. So it actually depends on what Mario game you're playing when you're playing them if there actually is a thing going on or not. I like to perceive that there is, but I like that they didn't hammer down on it because sometimes that can kind of cheapen the female characters if they're just there to be a love interest you know it's hard to do it in a a lot of people don't do it in a good way so i like that the seeds were planted that they could do it in a sequel if they want to but they might not and i and i kind of like that ambiguity of it and that she was just like her own character instead i guess i'm not a fan of it in the game so much as you know her affections being a reward for saving her that feels off but in the movie, he doesn't save her, so it's not so. Yeah, yeah. Toxic. I mean, when the time comes, she saves herself, which was yeah, yeah. one of the better parts of the movie. <laughs> oh, she straight up um, just like punches Bowser in the nose in one part, <laughs> like f- running punch. It's like hell yeah. <laughs> oh, like another seed they left. They they do ask the question how Peach ended up being the princess of the Mushroom Kingdom, which is just filled with toads. They set that up. They don't answer it. There's clearly a sequel in in mind there, it just in the mm. modern Hollywood sense of franchising. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> everything's got to be setting up for the next movie because the current movie is the advertisement for the next movie. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, we'll see if they actually make it. We talked about Bowser just a minute there. Uh, I was kind of excited to see Bowser in this movie because, you know, he's voiced by Jack Black, who is usually incredibly magnetic in whatever movie he's in. Even if it's a bad movie, he's usually worth seeing in it. Uh, the trailers made it look like they were going pretty serious with Bowser this time. <laughs> he seemed like he was a real threat, was really leaning into his more menacing personality. Yeah, no. <laughs> they they uh, left some things out of the trailers. Uh, it's another Bowser wants to marry Princess Peach plot. I, I didn't care for it at all, actually. Bowser was the thing that was most let down by in this movie. Mainly because I, I didn't understand why he wanted to marry Princess Peach. Except that he's the villain and that's just what he does. They They don't even seem to have a pre-established relationship they seem to be have met each other for the first time just before they get married later on in the movie i didn't care for this at all (laughs) i was very disappointed by bowser oh i liked it the execution wasn't great for the why like his motivation you're right it's just kind of he's just infatuated with her but like 
why? Like, there's, there's surely more to it. And the linchpin of it was getting the power star, which we see happen in the in the first trailer, and then he never uses it. It's like, why did you need the power star to do this if you're not going to use it to do it? What happened to the plot here? Uh, I really like the Bowser stuff just because I prefer the more pathetic Bowser because it reminds me of the RPG games rather than like the main series games. And I felt like they were also yeah. they really wanted to put a big Mario Odyssey reference in there because that's the one they can really sell because it's like mm. one of the most recent ones. So they're like, oh, we got to have something that looks like the wedding scene in Super Mario Odyssey. So let's put that in there. I think that's probably what it was. And I don't actually like Jack Black much because he's also a bit problematic. So I, I was actually on the fence about that. But I, How so? I, uh, he, I've, he, he I've does, never heard anything bad about him. He supports Autism Speaks, which is a charity who oh. believe in eugenics about autistic people. So... <laughs> mm. No, I'm not okay with that being that I am autistic and also it's just not cool. I still thought it was great. I thought it was just really funny. I, I maybe it would have been cool to keep him like scary Bowser and then done the kind of pathetic thing later on, but I, I I couldn't stop laughing at the musical number, so I was I was okay with it. <laughs> yeah, there's Peaches, mm. which is becoming a bit of a meme. <laughs> I don't know. What do you two think about Peaches? Because uh, I'll I'll get to it. I was just going to say that I really like that Bowser's facial performance felt really Jack Black as well. Like a lot yeah. of the lines, mm. the way that he talks really came through in the animation. Well, I know when they were recording Sonic, when they were doing, uh, what's his name? Ben Schwartz. Sure. Um, I was trying to think of his Parks and Recreation name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, when they were doing the sound... When the voice recording for him, they actually motion captured his face. So yeah, I wonder if do. they did something similar here. Yeah, well, it's weird that they have similar faces. That's an odd thing to say. <laughs> but uh, I also really liked at the end when he's just in like full rage mode and his eyes are narrowed and he actually started feeling like a bit more of a threat. Mm -hmm. Just as like an animation nerd, that was really cool. Just betraying so much of his anger in uh, how his face looks, basically. Well, at one point he sings a song called Peaches, which is about how much he loves Peach. And it just felt like a Jack Black ad-lib to me that wasn't funny. Oh, apparently it was, they asked that it was in the, before they cast casted anybody, it was in that there was going to be that segment. So I think that was before Jack Black was even a part of it, allegedly. Well, we may never know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there was a, they might have had an idea for a song, but like, I've seen most of Jack Black's movies. Yeah. That looked like something he just improved to me. <laughs> He's credited as the songwriter uh, for it, so. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. I thought it was kind of lame. <laughs> oh, I liked it. Yeah. There's a scene in, in Cheers where Woody, the idiot bartender, is writes a song for his girlfriend uh, for her birthday, and it's pretty similar where he just starts repeating her name because he doesn't know what else to do. It's really dumb. Uh, in Cheers, it's funny because it's supposed to be dumb. In this, I just I just didn't get it. You make me feel that the whole world is mine. Kelly, 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 Kelly. Because you're Kelly, 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 Kelly,
And this, the whole cinema, when I was in it, was like laughing really loudly. And there was no kids in oh, my yeah. screening because yeah. it was uh, night Really? Yeah. Oh, well, because oh. it was 20 past eight. So there were a ton of kids at my <laughs> screening. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I feel a little uncomfortable in here. I hope nobody thinks I'm a weirdo. But yeah. There were, there were definitely some other people in there who were like me, who were like adults who were just seeing it because of the game. But, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. There were a ton of kids at my screening. When I went to see Sonic, it was just me and my partner were the only people there that didn't have kids. And I was like, people are looking at us. <laughs> but in Mario, because it was nighttime, it was literally just people 30s and above with all Mario t-shirts on. And I was like, ah, this is more like it. <laughs> but no, everybody laughed at that bit. I think it's just like every time he says peaches, there's like a really like cheesy like image of her that pops up in the screen. And I just thought... It, the way that was done was just really yeah. funny. Frozen 2 did the same thing where it had like the 80s power ballad that was supposed to be hilarious. I just thought it was just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> just those really excessive 80s music video tropes. I just, oh, yeah. they don't amuse me. I'm just like, oh, this is so dumb. This is this is why we're glad the 80s is over. <laughs> this and Maggie Thatcher is dead. You know, we're, we're glad. <laughs> Well, yeah, that especially. But uh, no, I liked it. We thought it might be a musical. So I did assume there would be like another song. And that was it. And I was like, oh, maybe I would have maybe liked another song. If they're going to have one, you might as well have a another. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'll say for Illumination, outside of Sing, they don't really do uh, yeah. musicals. So I was not worried about that at all. And I, uh, oof, I'm so glad this was not a musical. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of funny because there is actually yeah. an official Bowser musical number that came out on a Nintendo CD in like uh, late 80s, early 90s. And it's absolutely mm. phenomenal. It's called Ignorance is Bliss. There was a famous animation to it in the New Gardens days. If you can look it up, do look it up. And if they did something like that, that would be absolutely fantastic because it's all about like Bowser being like an oil mm. baron and it's official. So I actually thought they were going to use that because they probably still own the rights to it. But oh well. <laughs> I'm not really a musical fan, so it's not a huge, like, you know, deal breaker or anything. It was just weird that there was one song and only one little song. But then it's not that long either, so it's all good. But the other music, there's a lot of reorchestrated Mario music in this. And mm-hmm. it, it, some of it's pretty elaborate to the point where I'm like, oh, I know that song, but it still sounds original. Uh, I really liked those parts of the soundtrack. Were those the highlights for you too? Uh, there was tons of references not just to Mario games, but Donkey Kong. There was a little Yoshi's Island in there. Captain Toad. No, it's when um, they find all the the pipes under Brooklyn and really subtly just hear the piano doing like do-do-do-do-do-do. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. I mean, it's obvious, but it's also not obvious. They did it in such a lovely little way. And I was like pointing to the screen. I was like, oh, oh, every second. It was just, oh, it must have been really, really fun to score that movie. And then there's the pop music, <laughs> which uh, kind of took me by surprise. Yeah. And there's a lot of it. I almost immediately forgot most of them because they don't really add anything to the movie. I actually I had to look up a track list uh, to add all these songs to our show notes in here because I could not remember what the songs were once they were there. There's Holding Out for a Hero, Thunderstruck by ACDC, No Sleep Till Brooklyn of all sins oh, that was, was in there. Mr. Blue Skies at the end. I remember Take On Me just because it was the most out there 
song. It's like, yeah. why, why is this happening? <laughs> Let me say this right. L'amour est un oiseau de belle was also played when during the plumbing scene. And actually, I, I really enjoyed that. I felt <laughs> that actually... Uh, that actually fit in with the rest of the movie. But all these other pop songs, I was like, oh, this is a choice that I feel like Illumination made, not Nintendo. Yeah, I did like the Beastie Boys, though, because I was like, of course, Brooklyn. That I thought that was really, really funny because um, I, I would never link Beastie Boys to Mario in a million years. And that felt really cool. But the other ones did feel a bit weird. Like holding out for a hero. Doesn't Shrek 2 use that at some point? Shrek did it, yeah. Yeah, um, it feels like it was just. It was in the Detective Pikachu trailer, too. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe there's like a thing in a contract that says we have to put this in as many animations as possible. Um, that did feel a bit weird. I would have rather just more of the score, but I, I really did like hearing the Beastie Boys, but I just thought that kind of made it more funny. If you haven't seen the movie yet, just brace yourself. There's <laughs> pop music in this for some reason. <laughs> Gotta sell those compilation CDs. Yeah, even though I, I really do think people would be a lot more interested in the, the orchestrated soundtrack. I think that's all that's in there. They have the soundtrack up on Spotify now and a bunch of other music streaming sites. I think they just have the reorchestrated music in there. I don't think they have any of the licensed stuff, mm-hmm. but... Yeah. I, I was just really baffled by this these songs being here, and I just I wanted to put them in the show notes so I could complain about it. <laughs> uh, so what are our final thoughts? I kind of gave my final thoughts at the start. Like, it's fine. Wasn't expecting too much, and it really wasn't too much. And really, if you've been watching all of the marketing for it, you've already seen pretty much the entire movie. <laughs> the The only really surprising thing in it for me was the ending, how they did the ending. I didn't expect them to go and do that but everything else is like yeah this is pretty much exactly what i expected i really liked it there was a lot of reviews that is going around and as a friend of mine said i don't i don't bash reviews because i'm not a cannibal uh and and, uh, (laughs) because it's also my job i don't i don't like you know bashing critics or anything but a lot of them were like uh, just really bizarre and a lot of them were either mixed or said it was bad so I actually went in going oh no what if I don't like it and then I came out going oh that was well. so lovely <laughs> I think also like I I, uh, I mean we're on a Nintendo podcast so we're kind of the target demographic you know for for the non-kids kind of get demographic but for me like it reminded me of being a little and watching the cartoon where Mario was like my world and I kind of wish I could go back in time and show this to my like younger self because they would have like lost their mind it was a little too fast paced for me in sections but I think the short run time mm. made up for that because I'm a bit fed up with movies being ridiculously long these days it was just what nice. are you talking about <laughs> uh, it was just nice and sweet and fun and I actually looking out for the easter eggs was like an extra layer of fun for me there was like the the car wash that had the balloon fight guy on it and there was like the 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 cards mario cards that you know nintendo used to sell there's bits there was like really obscure ones and really obvious ones and i just thought it was delightful i'm a bit annoyed that the the post credit scene wasn't as cool as it could have been yeah that was a letdown i don't want to spoil that but then i mean it wasn't that exciting well it's the exact i almost i don't even know if they did this on purpose but it was the exact same thing as the godzilla 
Yeah, Godzilla. Yeah, I think the that Godzilla was on 1998. Purpose. Yeah, the exact same thing. Yeah, that must be <laughs> that must be a reference there. Um, or they just did that by accident. Cause it, <laughs> actually, if they did it by accident, it would be even better. <laughs> yeah, well, because that Godzilla is set in New York City, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just making sure. But yeah, no, I, I thought it was really lovely. It's a lot of fish. <laughs> okay. No, don't remind me. I actually quite. I like love that movie. movie. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. I love that movie. <laughs> it's like a guilty pleasure. I will be getting the Blu-ray to the movie, and I have asked for the special edition soundtrack on vinyl for my birthday this year. So I'm. I, I just think it's really lovely. I think this. If there's sequels to this, they're going to be more interesting. And Charlie Day says he wants well, a Luigi's Mansion movie, and I'm like, please, because there was. A I'd reference. see that. Yeah. They needed so much more Luigi in this movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Luigi's the better brother anyway. But <laughs> Like I said, already it's on track for being the best opening animated box office in history. Yeah. Like, I, I thought Frozen was undefeatable, but apparently not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is almost certainly getting a sequel of, yeah. some, of some, some sort. Yeah, I overall enjoyed it. Um, it is very much a movie for the fans more than movie critics, mm. evidently. Fans and kids. Fans and kids, but I'd even say that the kids would typically have to be a fan to really... Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. I just feel like there's a lot of stuff in this movie that's just not really explained for the sake of non-Mario fans. Like, the power-ups are just like... They're there, and Mario fans are like, of course they're there. Whereas everyone else I've seen, like, movie critics saying, I don't understand... The, the power-ups aren't explained and it's like it's just have you not played a mario game i don't understand people alive in 2023 who don't know what a super mushroom and a fire flower do <laughs> okay if you have your head that buried up your own behind that is your <laughs> own problem <laughs> i dare you not know what a flower flower is don't review the movie if you are that clueless just <laughs> go retire you are clearly well past your expiration date It's also that thing of movies don't have to be for everyone. They can be for a certain subset of audience, and that is okay, I think. Mm. Most movies are. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like that guy who reviewed the Tetris movie who didn't know what Tetris was. It's like, hello? What? You don't know what Tetris (laughs) is? Excuse me? (laughs) That's weird. That's another issue entirely. (laughs) Yeah, there's a fair bit of, like, assumed knowledge going into this. Yeah. Like, it jumps right into the Mushroom Kingdom. I, I think it's barely 10 minutes in Brooklyn at the start. I would yeah. like them to have spent a lot more time there, personally, but... Yeah. Well, we get to see the family, which I thought was cool, how the, like, the uncles look like alternate universe Luigi's. <laughs> and their dad looks like Talon from Link. Mario's dad looks like uh, how Mario looked on the Super Mario Super Show in the live-action sequences. Yeah. Mm. That was what I took that to be, and apparently voiced by... Charles Martinet doing a, a much more convincing voice <laughs> of a yeah. real person. <laughs> he he does a, he does a bunch of roles in this movie, and what I know is he does the guy at the start who's making fun of Mario's accent, and then I'm pretty sure he's Mario's dad, and I think he has a bunch of other roles throughout too. And p- part of the fun is figuring out who he is. Mm. Sounds like we all liked it to different degrees. None of us disliked it, but Rosalie is the most enthusiastic, <laughs> I think. Sylvia and I are both like, yeah, we saw that. <laughs> I'm an animation like nerd, so I don't know if that plays a part. <laughs> I, I liked it, but like, um, it's not the best thing ever. No. Yeah. All right, so let's move on with what we played this week. 
I'll start out with a, an indie action platformer I played called Have a Nice Death. Uh, you play as Death, who, you know, is the Grim Reaper. He goes around uh, meeting people just before their deaths to reap their souls and send them into the afterlife. And this is going pretty well for him for a long time. Uh, but after a while, the workload starts building up on him, and he's like, there's got to be a better way. So he starts Death Incorporated, and he starts getting all of these employees to help him with the increasing number of dying people. And uh, his job transforms from reaping souls to sitting at his desk in the CEO's office, rubber stamping all the reaping other people are doing. And uh, after a while, like this big, mighty, eldritch creature turns into this very diminutive, you know, skeleton man with a rubber stamp. And uh, eventually there's some kind of uprising, like uh, the other... Uh, people who work at Death Incorporated try to take over, and so Death has to finally leave his office and go out and basically beat the crap out of all of his employees to make them get back in line. Interesting premise for a game. Uh, as far as how it's actually played, it's a fairly straightforward, you know, roguelite-style game. It's a, it's a side-scrolling platformer. It pretty strongly resembles Hollow Knight, although it doesn't really play like it. Uh, the levels are nowhere near as intricate, just for starters. It's uh, much more focused on combat. Going into it early on, like after playing it for like a couple hours, is like, this reminds me of Dead Cells more than anything else, although it's not nearly as intricate in its level design as Dead Cells is. It's much more focused on, on its combat. And there are three different kinds of attacks that Death can do. He has his scythe, and then he has his cloak, which can transform into special weapons, and then he has a, a book that has all of the laws of death and it has the log of everybody who's ever died in it and he can use it to cast magic and as it's a roguelite style game you can accumulate curses and since death is you know dead and he's evil it follows adam's family logic where curses are good so you can increase the power of like the sides or the cloaks or the spells and you've got to kind of lean into the power ups you're getting if you want to really succeed and you unlock new things over the course of the game uh, by earning golden ingots by defeating more powerful enemies, and you can take them back to the office every time you die, and you can buy new weapons. Kind of? I don't really understand how this actually works, because the new weapons and spells that I'm buying back in the office were appearing in the level anyway, uh, I think when you buy them, it just makes them so that way you could possibly start off with those at the start of each attempt you make instead of, you know, waiting for them to appear in a shop or as a reward for finishing one of the floors. It's one of the more confusing mechanics because uh, it's not explained very well. Uh, how, how that works at the start is uh, each time you go out into death incorporated to try to bring everything under control you can sign a contract at the elevator and this these contracts will have different effects like you might get a health bonus if you can defeat a certain number of enemies within two minutes but if you fail you actually lose health uh, and a lot of the contracts will actually give you these weapons and spells straight at the start that seems to be how it works i don't i don't I can't explain it because the game itself isn't very clear how it works because you can still get these things without having to buy them. Uh, so buying them isn't 
100% necessary. In terms of difficulty as well, like, uh, I've been really trying my best, and I still haven't been able to get much past the third floor in this, much past the, uh, the second boss. The bosses are kind of cool, because this game is all based on office culture. Like, the first boss is the security officer who controls the lobby, like, who controls the people who go in and out. His name is Brad, and he's a gargoyle. (laughs) (laughs) And he's obsessed with social media, so he's always slacking off on his phone instead of, uh, you know, doing his job as the security officer. Except sometimes you go in, and he's actually doing his job, and he's wearing his suit, and he's got his earpiece in, and he knows all these kung fu moves. Every time I run into that version of Brad, he kicks my butt. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting game. I think it's kind of a cool premise. It's just... I have not been able to stick with it very well. Uh, it's I, My interest has been waning the more I try to play it because that unlock system, uh, as demonstrated by my very scattered explanation of it, is not very clear how it actually works and how it actually benefits you. I don't really feel like death is actually getting stronger uh, as I play the game, contrasted with like dead cells where player character in that as you accumulate the cells and you buy upgrades is visibly gaining power and like gaining advantages in addition to increasing the pool of weapons that you can get i'm not feeling that in have a nice death so if you're in for like a super challenging combat platformer game you might still enjoy it but uh i'm I'm feeling pretty iffy on it myself so rosalie's playing life is strange too why don't you go ahead and tell us about that I'll preface this with I used to be a diehard obsessive with the first game in the series. I didn't play it when it first released, so it was like, if anyone doesn't know, Life is Strange games usually come out in like episodes that you would pay each for or a season pass for. And by the time I got to it, it was a full game, but I I was obsessed and I used to cosplay the, the first game's protagonist, Max. It was my life for a long period of time, but it actually took him me only recently to play all the other ones. I don't actually know why. <laughs> um, but I'm glad I finally did because I've kind of remembered why I was so obsessed with the first game. Life is Strange 2, which is actually its own game, it's not technically a sequel or anything, came out on the Switch as of the start of this year. Um, it originally came out in what, 2018? Uh, it's a bit hard to remember that because there was that whole, you know, uh, pandemic thing in between so I get a little lost in my ears. All the Life is Strange games are still kind of set in the same universe so there'll be like references and kind of lore thing going, lore stuff going on in the background but it's not really that important but this is set three years after the first game so it's about 2016. This game is about two brothers Sean and Daniel Diaz. Sean is about 16 years old and Daniel's nine and at the start of the game, they're living in Seattle. They have kind of like a typical suburban life, uh, but they have to leave because they have an altercation with their neighbor. And by the end of that altercation, their dad is shot uh, by a police officer and your younger brother, you play as the older brother, not the one with the powers this time around, which is kind of interesting. Uh, he has unlocks his powers of telekinesis and he blasts the police officer away. And because you are a mixed race family and the themes of that are very in, you know, integral to this game, you take your brother and you basically run and become fugitives and it becomes like a road trip kind of thing. It doesn't kind of mention it, but it's very apparent this is kind of like 
pre-Trump America because the reason you have an altercation with the neighbor is that he like shouts at you and says like you're the reason we're building the wall and I was like oh no this isn't gonna end well and mm. Mm. Uh, but it does it really well it, it doesn't feel inauthentic and it's not just that one bit it's uh, as you go along you kind of meet characters and you you realize that they're looking at you weird or there's there's bigotry is really heavily involved it's handled really well um but like I said the cool thing about this one is that you are not the one with the powers because in every life is strange game you're usually like a teenager going through something difficult and you have a magical power it's not the focus the focus is usually on like characters and emotions and um the story itself and the powers are kind of in the background which is why I really kind of like these games uh the powers are more like a supplemental kind of thing to it and for this one they were like you're not the one with the powers but they do that really cleverly in that you are the older brother and if you're an older sibling uh usually there's kind of responsibility that your younger siblings will take after you so when you're on this kind of fugitive road trip uh there's like times where you can lie to people and where you can steal things because obviously you don't have much money you're kind of you're basically you know every day they have like nothing but if you steal and if you lie your little brother picks up on it and there'll be later situations where he might disobey you or lie or do things and I, I don't know exactly how like they've implemented it in like the code or whatever but it, it it's really clever and um it adds kind of more weight to your decisions because there was a thing where we were meant to do chores and I did his chores and then there was a later point where he was like oh I'm not doing that and I was like, oh, <laughs> but that was my fault because he was taking after me because he thinks that, you know, if my brother's just going to do the dishes and why should I kind of thing. And I did think that was really clever. And the gameplay in general, it's very similar to the other games where it's it's kind of more of an interactive like story. Uh, you can walk about and you, you can look at items and either the character will say, will say something out loud or they'll think something to themselves. There's also like collectibles in every stage that you know you don't have to pick up if you're not on the Switch and obviously there's like trophies behind that. But the cool thing about these games I think is that they kind of do that thing where your menu is like a, a journal and a diary. So in this game uh, Sean is an artist so he draws a lot and there's actually like some areas where you can like focus and like scribble in your journal and as it's not really a mini game it's just like a a button press but like his journal fills up with this beautiful drawing i love when they add that touch because you in these games you never have to go on the menu you never have to read their journals but if you do it adds this lovely layer to the story and how they feel about certain characters and in this one it's handled really well because you have an inventory which you don't actually have in the other games and every single item in there he'll he'll reference something like at one point you live in an abandoned house and there's some old toys there and there's like a baby doll that's like absolutely terrifying and he makes a comment like oh why would you want to play with this this is horrible and it just adds this really lovely layer to it what I really was drawn to for these games and it's still in this game is that the first game in the series is essentially a queer love story canonically you can make it not that because it's it, it's decision based but that's always a main draw for these games and that is in this one it's just not as interesting. There's actually more scenes if you pick the other romance option, which was a bit annoying. 
I don't think it was deliberate. In the other games, you're usually your love interest, you're with them throughout the entire game. In this, it's more about the two brothers. You know, their dad's dead. They they can't go back home. They're fugitives. They have to keep the wee kids. He's a boy. He wants to, you know, use his telekinesis, but you kind of can't because if people find out, things could go horribly. It's more about them together and what your brother learns from you than it is about romance options. But you are an awkward teenager, so I'm glad it's still in there. And it was cool that the um, gay relationship that you can have in it was handled really well. It was really lovely. It's not as important as it's been in other games. This one also isn't very as hipstery as the other ones, which for other people could be a plus. I I don't really care either way the story in this is rather than being about like teenagers and it's more about like family so they kind of don't double down on the hipstery stuff but it does still have an absolutely fantastic soundtrack that's got like at one point at the start when you're you know still at home you're listening to listomania by a french band called phoenix and i used to be obsessed with that song um, back in the day life is strange is usually quite good at having this if you were ever like an indie kid and used to go to a lot of gigs like as a teenager there's like a weird nostalgia with these games where it kind of they really hammer down on the music and there's scenes where characters will play songs like actual songs in real life um not just like fictional bands that pop up in games a lot I like when there's indie rock music in games and they handle it well and it's not like doesn't seem weird like we're talking the Mario movie earlier where sometimes actual songs and things sound a bit odd. I can't really go into the plot much because these games are like telltale games. It's an interactive story. The story is the game. But the themes of like um, racism and bigotry and gun violence and being in that time where uh, if you were anything but white in America, it was incredibly difficult. They handle that really, really well. Although it does it makes some situations scarier than others because at one point you meet like a redneck and um, you're in a shop and you have the option to steal. But whether you do or not, the guy still like accuses you because of course he does. Uh, so it's a bit scarier than the other games in that respect because in the other, the first two games you are just like a white suburban teenager kind of thing. If, for whatever reason, because I don't really play Telltale games anymore because I'm still a bit salty when they fired a lot of their staff. <laughs> so, like, if you're, like, feel like you're missing that kind of gameplay, th- this game, I think, especially is perfect. There's more of a wider audience, whereas the first Life is Strange can feel a bit more hipstery and a bit more, like, you know, cringy. But I think this one has can have a wider audience because you're, you're you're two guys and you're going through a lot and it's more about family and love and trust this is the last one in all of them that i need to 100 percent um the last one of me finally playing all of them and it's just been very fun and emotional and wonderful and has reminded me why i love the first one which is also now on the switch because there's a remastered collection i do recommend people go out and play it um, Life is Strange 2 is only about £25 over here, so I imagine about, like, what, $20 maybe in the States? Or maybe, I don't know how exchange rates work, really. And to me, that's worth it, because you get the full game, you don't have to buy it in episodes anymore, and it's it's got a good length time, and it's just... Oh, I just love these games. <laughs> I don't know if either of you have ever played any of them before, but this one isn't my favourite. I think True Colours is my favourite, which was came out after this one every character in this i just want to hug (laughs) go and play it go and play all of them if you can they're wonderful all right 
And Sylvie has been playing uh, Deltarune Chapter 1 and 2. Sylvie, go ahead and tell us about that. These are hard to talk about without really spoiling the whole premise. Just do it. <laughs> well, no, I, I think as much as I'm not a... I'm not bothered by spoilers. I feel like Deltarune is something that you got to kind of experience some of the nuances mm. yourself. But anyway, Deltarune also happens to be a anagram for Undertale because it is a sort of reassembling of those Undertale assets into something new. So I'm just going to assume that people are uh, familiar with Undertale and the characters mm -hmm. and the premise. Deltarune basically starts off with a character cre uh, creation screen that it asks you to, you know, pick the hair and the outfit and the and the pants and the name and its personality and then disregards it, <laughs> saying that nobody gets to choose who they are in this world, which kind of sets the tone ominously. Uh, it's a sort of Earthbound-inspired RPG. It's definitely very text heavy so get prepared to read uh i found deltarune and undertale to be hard games to play while watching something else uh and you probably don't want to do that anyway because the music's fantastic but i'll talk more about that later so deltarune it's going to be a seven chapter game only chapters one and two are out but they are free even though they're free i would still recommend playing undertale first uh it's specifically catered to people who have played and finished Undertale. But the, the overall theme of it is instead of monsters versus humans, you're, you're still playing a human character called Chris, uh, K-R-I-S, and they're um, kind of a part, like a, an adopted kid of this other monster family with characters that you'll remember from Undertale, such as uh, Toriel, uh, Azriel, the son, and I guess your adopted brother. And uh, Asgore, Toriel and Asgore seem to be separated. It's not really explained why. There's hints littered throughout the world as to why. But uh, anyway, you, you go off to school and you get told by your teacher that you need to find a partner for a uh, group project, but everyone else is taken. And you're kind of lumped in by default with the uh, cast bully, Susie. Susie has a habit of eating chalk and other... <laughs> not really edible objects. That's just something that she enjoys doing. She and Chris are sent to the supply closet to grab some chalk, but instead of a closet, it's a portal to a, a dark world, which is themed on board games and chests and checkers and cards. Yeah, that's probably as far as I can go before I start really spoiling the, the experience of the story. The general gist is that you start meeting characters like Lancer uh, and your new party member called uh, Rolse, which is an anagram for Asriel as well. There's a lot of an anagrams in this. You're told of like a, a prophecy of two lightners and a darkner, where you find out that this place that you're in is a dark world and the people who live there are darkners, whereas you came from the light world, so you're lightners. There's a prophecy for you to close the uh, Dark Fountain. I don't even know entirely what the Dark Fountain is, but it's not good. Uh, <laughs> it's some sort of plot mechanic for you, for the, the bad guys to take over the world or something. 
I don't think it's as relevant to the story as its metafictional elements. Uh, ultimately, the, the two chapters of Deltarune have this sort of vague theme of control. Uh, it plays around with the concept of the relationship between the video game, the protagonist you play as, and the, the player, you. There are moments where Susie just refused to listen to you. Uh, she's meant to be a party member, but she will just not listen to, um, I guess, Chris is saying, but it's technically you saying it. There's even a part in the game where you you and Rolse have to warn the enemies that she's coming to attack them so that they can avoid getting hurt if you want to play in the, the pacifist way, where instead of killing enemies like a standard RPG, you can kind of befriend these monsters. You know, if you're familiar with Undertale, one of the big selling points of Undertale is that it's the RPG where no one has to die. Uh, you can play the whole game through without killing anybody, directly at least. That's still present in Deltarune, but it's not as prominent. Like, acting is still there where you can kind of figure out how to avoid battle with these monsters. While Susie is still not sold on that premise, she's very much a, they're an enemy, so I'm going to hit them with my axe sort of person. Yeah, you have to kind of mitigate that damage. Unless you, you want that, you can play it that way too. Um, chapter 1 doesn't really respond that much to how you play it. Chapter 2 is where those themes start to kind of seep in a little bit. If you play the No Mercy route, it can be a bit full on. So heads up if you haven't played it already. It's It explores some very weirdly emotionally traumatic themes. So just keep that in mind. Um, it might look cute and the, the soundtrack might be fun, but it is kind of messed up what happens. That said, chapter two, I think is my favorite out of the two, where instead of this board game themed world, it's a computer world. Uh, the main antagonist of that chapter is the queen and she just kind of speaks without punctuation and just a really good, well-written and funny character, uh, entertaining at least. There's also the side boss character called Spamton, which I'm sure if you haven't played the games, you've at least heard of this character. Because you're inside of a computer, all of the kind of different elements of computers and internet stuff, I guess, has a personality. Uh, there are these things called Addisons, and they're just personifications of ads, online ads. And Spamton is specifically spam emails, I guess. He talks in this very peculiar way. It, it's kind of, it kind of reminds me of Bumblebee from the uh, Transformers movie where he talks through like tuning into different radio stations as they're saying different stuff. That's what I get from Spamton. Uh, he looks like this very creepy doll. He's just a character that you meet on your way through this cyber world. But if you decide to spare him and engage in his side story there's a whole tragic backstory behind him and a secret boss fight if you uh go through with his mission there's uh, a secret boss in chapter one as well that i just i tried to beat it and i couldn't they're, they're quite difficult because the combat in this is part rpg and part bullet hell which is a very unique i don't think any other games quite done it like this where on your turn you're just 
performing actions. Sometimes there's direct player button input, but some most of the time it's just press attack, they attack. But uh, on your enemy's turn, they'll attack you with uh, bullets, I guess, projectiles, uh, and you control your little heart-shaped um, object to dodge the bullets. Uh, you just get like a little square to move around in and dodge around the more enemies the harder it is because they're all attacking at once and they all have a different attack pattern. It feels like a massive upgrade from Undertale, which wasn't bad by any means, but it's not a in-depth combat system. It's not the point of the game where it feels like Deltarune is accommodating that playstyle a lot more. But yeah, overall, it's uh, it really is just a narratively driven game and talking too much about the themes of it, I think... This is definitely something that I don't think the plot points matter so much is just how the emotions of the characters are portrayed. It's something that a lot of people, including myself, just kind of find connections to mm -hmm. uh, all these different people. One thing that I, I don't see talked about that often, but I don't, I don't know why, but a lot of the characters, it kind of just normalizes a lot of uh, queer community stuff. Like the fact that the main character is non-binary and not a single person has any issue with it, with saying they, them. There's gay relationships and it's not brought up that it's weird that there's gay relationships or crushes or whatever. It just is normalized. And I guess it's just nice to kind of see like an ideal world where that is the case. And as far as I know, I don't think Toby Fox is uh, queer, but if he is, well, isn't. Uh, either way, I think he's nailed it. They, they just feel like people who happen to be leaning that way. And I thought mm -hmm. that was um, really nice to see that naturally portrayed. It's rare. <laughs> Highly recommend it. I've got the, the soundtrack on vinyl on its way, just because that's probably one of my most favorite parts of Toby Fox games. Yeah. It's just so well done, really unique usage of um, leitmotifs where the same kind of melodies and themes will be reused for when certain characters are, uh, you know, going through a moment or just callbacks to what that character represents. Uh, I think the secret boss music from chapter one and chapter two is some of the best. Maybe not megalovania levels of fantastic, but <laughs> megalovania is on a whole nother level to me, but it's still really good. Like I'm listening to this soundtrack a lot, even after I've played the game. Um, it's one of those soundtracks where you can listen to it from start to finish and kind of replay the game in your head while you're doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, you're very strongly attached these songs to the characters that they are, they're associated with and, uh, Apparently he's a self-taught musician, which is just mind-blowing to me. He did like Undertale, the music and the whole most of the game on his own while working part-time at a cinema. He's yeah. like amazing. Like he's one of my heroes, Toby Fox. He's just brilliant. Honestly, yeah. He just seems to to get it, and like the art style suits the the level of storytelling that they're going for as well. Mm. I know I've complained about pixel graphic indie games before, but I think it really works with Deltarune because there's so much personality given to these little pixelated characters. <laughs> and you just 
get really attached to them. Like they're really animated. Um, not literally. I mean, a little literally. Um, <laughs> just like they're, they're really expressive, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, even when they're like a little tiny sprite on the screen, like you get such a good read on their personality and and everything. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough, but definitely don't jump into it if you haven't played Undertale. I don't think. Yeah. Like you, you might be able to. Even Toby Fox says that this is a game made for people who have played and finished Undertale. I still remember when it first came out, he just kind of stealth dropped it. Um, and the entire time I'm just going, what the hell is going on? <laughs> like, I know these people, I know these characters, this is new music. Why, why am I in this bedroom? Yeah. You know, it's just, what is it? It is its own thing, but at the same time, it kind of uses those undertale, um, themes and characters to kind of shortcut you into this world. And they, yeah. they patched Undertale to make references to Deltarune, right? There's that little shop with the turtle and it has like the Deltarune logo in the background and he, if you talk to him, he kind of starts to talk about it but doesn't and I was like, oh, Toby Fox. Yeah, I think there's a character <laughs> in Undertale that even says that Susie's coming soon or something. It's yeah. spelt different, but yeah. I love that. <laughs> I will... I will say as well, the Chapter 2 soundtrack is my most played thing on Spotify. So every time there's like a, like the end of the year, like, he's all your songs. And it's always Toby Fox, number one, Delta and soundtrack. And I'm like, yeah, it's so good. Since I got into um, Toby Fox's stuff, he's always been my most played Spotify <laughs> every year. Yeah. Uh, it's like really my... good music. It's yeah. not technically complex i think some of it might be but overall it's just effective use of music and instrumentation i mean i'm just going to geek out for one <laughs> second the fact that undertale's soundtrack starts off like really lo-fi 8-bit and as you progress through the ruins the first level it starts going towards like 16-bit and then more midi and orchestrated stuff like there's a development it's just really clever use of uh sound and just to round out the episode i played tales of symphonia remastered over the last couple of weeks this is obviously a remaster of tales of symphonia which was a pretty big deal on gamecube when it came out back in the first half of the 2000s it was really the uh the game that put the tales of series into the mainstream conversation mm -hmm. there had been tales of games before that but this was the one that made the series what it is, sort of the, the Final Fantasy VII of the series. It tells the story of Colette, who is the chosen one who is supposed to go around the world of Silverant to open these packs with these different elemental spirits that will get the flow of mana going back through the world that will revitalize the world and make it so that way people can live better lives. Uh, and you don't actually play as Colette, you actually play as her friend Lloyd Irving, uh, who is kind of the local school idiot who is more interested in uh, practicing his swordsmanship and learning how to be a blacksmith slash artisan from his adopted dwarf father. Lloyd and his friend Genus are picking around this thing called a human ranch, which is near Isalia, the village where Colette lives. And the human ranch is where humans are enslaved by Desions, which are half-elves. They 
cause such a ruckus there trying to save this old woman who's a friend of theirs uh, that they end up getting Asalia attacked after Colette has already left on her journey. So they get banished from the village and Lloyd and Genus decide to catch up with that group and tag along on this, this quest to save the world, kind of to redeem themselves for what they made happen in Asalia. Now, needless to say, this is a Tales of game, so it gets a lot more complicated than that <laughs> as it goes on. This is really only describing the first act of the three-act structure, and as I was playing it, it occurred to me how much it resembles Final Fantasy X. Now, I didn't play Final Fantasy X until almost the end of that decade, and I played Tales of Symphonia, you know, fairly shortly after it came out. So there was a number of years between them, and I had a lot of other things going on in my life, so I didn't quite connect those dots. But now that I know both games quite well, I was sitting there playing it, and I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is the plot to Final Fantasy X. <laughs> Especially with... Uh, you know, Colette and Yuna both having to go around the world and uh, visit all these shrines to save the world, and then they find out that there's actually something else going on with their journey. The difference is in Final Fantasy X, once Yuna finds out what's really going on, she manages to wrap up that situation fairly quickly with the help of her friends. Uh, the situation and how it goes terribly wrong is just the end of the first act in Tales of Symphonia. Oh. All of the things that they have to do to kind of fix the situation and, and make the world better for everybody goes in lots of different directions. It's a very complex story, and I think it has a lot of ideas in it, and I'm usually pretty critical of RPGs that have too many ideas. It was just a few episodes back where I said that Square Enix needs to learn that simpler is better. But I think Tales of Symphonia, they really... They pull off having so many different ideas quite well. And, and as the story goes on, even though Colette is like she's the chosen one at the start, uh, Lloyd kind of steps up into the central hero role. And by the end of the game, he's the driving force of the narrative and he's the one who has like the solutions to solve everything. It's a pretty great story and it, it set the tone for what the Tales of games have going forward because it's a series that's very well known for having strong stories uh, and i think this is of the ones i've played i think is my favorite but i i, I have a lot of Ooh. these games to catch up on it's an excellent story i recommend playing it just for the story alone it's worth at least one playthrough uh, it's fairly typical as a tales game goes uh, again i haven't played all of them but i'm familiar with them it has a, a combat system where when you get into a battle it's all played in real time you run back and forth uh, with your party members it's a three-dimensional battle but your character can actually only move uh in two dimensions to the left and right based on what they're targeting so like if you want to move to the far side of the battlefield you have to target something else and then that'll change the orientation that you're running at it's it's really difficult to explain it's even more difficult to actually move where you want to there's a reason that later games in the series i think starting with tales of vesperia just lets you hold down a button then you could move in three dimensions wherever you want suffice to say you can't do that in tales of symphonia which uh 
did feel quite antiquated when I went back to it after playing Tales of Vesperia, but the game is built around those limitations, so it wasn't making the game more difficult to play compared to later games in the series, but it, it did feel a little odd that I couldn't just move wherever I wanted to whenever I wanted. It's based on a combo system. You have your basic attacks that come in three and four different combos, and then you can start building on your special attacks after that, which use uses your your mana resource and as you learn new skills you can start chaining them together and you can start building your combos up with your three basic attacks then your first special attack combo and your second special attack combo into your third special attack and you can start getting hit combos up into the 20s and 30s and when you get really good up into the 50s and 60s and into the hundreds it's a really engaging system it always keeps you busy doing something Another tr Tales trademark is each character is fully playable, although the game doesn't do a great job of communicating that to you. Like uh, I've played Tales of Symphonia four or five times now, and I I've still really only ever played as Lloyd. But if you go online on YouTube, you can actually find people who just play these games front to back with every character in the party, and they all play very differently. They all have different combat styles, and all of them are different levels of broken. Like, I know Colette actually has a reputation for just having an absolutely broken combat set that she can solo the entire game if you know what you're doing. Other other games in the series have become more refined as they've gone on. It all started here. I think it's a good time as far as its combat. Uh, the problem with Tales of Symphonia Remastered, and I think this has been very well reported in the past few months, but... I'm just going to bring it up again because uh, I've played it for myself now and can confirm. Uh, this is not a remaster. This is a bad port of a remaster <laughs> that came out, I think, on PS3 a long time ago. The original game ran in 60 FPS. This is only in 30 FPS. There are all kinds of visual glitches. The character portraits and like the menus are supposed to be overlaid over the game screen. And when you bring it up, it's supposed to just sit on top of the game world the game world blurs a little while it moves the focus to these menus whatever they've done to port this game just doesn't support it anymore so if you open up a menu or if you're going to one of the conversation skits it just puts their portraits on a black backdrop it looks really ugly and it's really noticeable that this is not how the game is supposed to work uh, the text just doesn't work right I don't know what they've done with this, but like there's, I think it's the letter H just has this stray pixel at the top of it. At the very top of the text box, every time there's a letter H, you'll see that little pixel up there. And there's a bunch of the other letters that just don't render right either. The frame rate drops to single digits uh, whenever there's a lot going on screen especially when you're in an area that has a lot of environmental effects which is unfortunately includes the desert where there are sandstorms which is one of the first areas in the game you visit so like you're not even two hours into the game and you're already encountering an entire area where you're running through it it single frame rate digits it's really really bad it's just unacceptable to even release a game in this state and also there's sound performance which i think this actually goes back to the original gamecube game this was just the quality of uh the equipment they were recording on or the software they were using uh the higher pitched a character's voice is the more their 
S sounds just get really distorted and get really staticky. Lloyd, please stop. Not everyone's strong enough to stand up against the designs. Please stop this. It's really unfortunate that this is a really significant game. It's a really important game. It's like one of the biggest RPGs to come out of the Zeros. Like the the RPGs as we know them today, this was kind of like a stepping stone towards that in terms of, you know, the complexity of the story and just how freaking long they started getting. Uh, this was the stepping stone towards those kind of games. And I was really excited to, you know, have it in a new remastered release and they've just completely botched it it's just a really bad port of a really great game so uh yeah don't play it here play it anywhere else they're supposed to be patching it to make it better it hasn't happened yet and usually i feel like if they haven't done it by the time i finish the game and i'm ready to talk about it too little too late <laughs> you need to uh, stay on top of these things faster so <laughs> better luck next time tales tales of vesperia on switch uh is it's not as good as Tales of Symphonia, like as an overall game, but as it runs on Switch, it's much better. So if you're interested mm -hmm. in a Tales game on Switch, get Tales of Vesperia. It's pretty good. Yeah, I've only played Vesperia and Arise. I haven't played any of the older ones. Tales of Arise is uh, very different. <laughs> yeah. Vesperia was great. So what are we playing next? Uh, Rosalie, we'll start with you. Uh, I'm going to play more of Paranormacite and hopefully complete it. Uh, I just got distracted because oh, I get distracted a lot. <laughs> and Sobe? Uh I'm going to be catching up on the Mario Kart 8 Deluxe DLC. I like to get three stars in all the cups, and uh, yeah. it's very hard. <laughs> it's frustrating. It's not hard. It's frustrating. <laughs> well, 200 cc. I'm doing just as good as I did last time, and then I got nailed by a blue shell, and then a lightning <laughs> bolt, and then three red shells just before the last turn on the last lap. What a coincidence. <laughs> that that That's not hard. That's just BS. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm going to play an indie adventure platformer called Curse of the Sea Rats, because if you give a rat and or a mouse a sword, I'm going to play that game. So <laughs> that's my damage. <laughs> so tune in for that episode coming soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of NFocus. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us get noticed. You can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast services. Be sure to join our Discord server to interact with the lively GamePodular community. Follow us on Twitter and at GamePodular.com for updates, news, and other content. Links to all our socials can be found at linktree forward slash game podular if you'd like to support our shows you can buy us a coffee or become a game podular patreon the details for both of these are on our website thanks in advance this episode was edited by andrew you can follow him on twitter at playcritically and check out his long-form reviews at playcritically.com you can follow myself sylvia at twitch.tv forward slash sylvie and rosalie on twitter at lil record girl